Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again together. Father, we come to your word wanting its truth, needing its life. Give us grace to hear. Uh, Give us power to respond in the Spirit that you might comfort us this day, convict us of that which plagues us and tempts us, that we might know you and love you, even in the midst of what often is perhaps a trying season of a frowning providence. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure many of you in the room are somewhat aware of the story of President Abraham Lincoln. Surely virtually every American citizen knows that he was assassinated in April of 1865, having died from complications of a bullet that lodged in his brain from John Wilkes Booth. But many Americans don't know, if not most Americans don't know, that it was four years prior that there was another assassination plot on his life. It was while Abraham Lincoln was making his train ride down to Washington, D.C. to give his first inaugural speech, basically to reside in D.C. and, of course, start his presidency. And a man named Alan Pinkerton, who was to become quite famous in the 19th century as the first detective in Chicago, uh, created a detective agency named after him that was a precursor to our nation's Federal Bureau of Investigation. Alan Pinkerton had heard a story that a man meant to assassinate Lincoln on his train ride down to Washington, D.C. A particular captain had decided that due to, of course, Lincoln's political sympathies, he needed to be offed. And then this man was going to slip off to the south to safety. Well, Pinkerton began to investigate what was known at the time as a fiendish plot. And he soon unraveled its truth and told it to soon to be inaugurated President Lincoln. And he quickly changed his train schedule, put on a disguise, took an early train to Baltimore, and slipped through the noose that had been set for him. And it was in the coming months that Alan Pinkerton became something of a close advisor to President Lincoln in the war that was soon to begin later on that year. And I tell you that because, of course, tonight in our text we have another failed assassination plot. But unlike Pinkerton, rising to a place of prominence and trusted advisor next to a president, this man named Mordecai lets the king know he's soon going to be killed. And he doesn't get anything for it. In fact, suddenly, suddenly and stunningly in a book of surprising Reversals, what we find is that it's none other than the man who would prove to be not only Mordecai's vaunted enemy, but the mortal foe of all of his people. He's the one that gets the promotion. And so we'll think about it more at the end, but kids, you want to recognize that what the book is reminding us over and over, certainly in the early chapters especially, is that life never goes like you planned it would. 
It's a good thing to learn early on in your life in Christ because you should have godly desires and aspirations, sanctified, holy, and humble ambitions for your life. But what you'll soon find out, should the Lord tarry and give you many years in service of his kingdom, is the plans never work out like you thought they would. Sometimes they're much better than you ever thought they would be. Some of you need to know sometimes it's much worse than you ever thought they would be. The Christian life is one that's often full of frowning providences, where God seems to frown upon your situation much more than smile upon your life. That's why an old Puritan named Thomas Watson said, yet still in spite of such frowning providences, he said, quote, God can be trusted, his providences can be trusted even when they seem to go against his purposes. Because what you know is his providence never actually goes against his purpose. Something that this book is going to continue to prove out over and over and scene after scene. So the simple theme in the end of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 3 is God's people under threat. God's people threatened with destruction is what we are going to look at together tonight. And I want to look at it in four particular movements. First of all, Mordecai's report. Secondly, Haman's rise. Thirdly, Mordecai's reaction. And fourthly, Haman's rage. And it's given you an idea, even those headings and divisions, that this very much soon is going to become a story that seems to be little more than two men at war according to their own spiritual commitments. A great battle is getting ready to be fought between Mordecai and Haman. So if you weren't with us last week, where we left off was a new queen had risen to prominence in Persia. You might remember it was back in chapter 1 that King Ahasuerus deposed his queen, Vashti, for her insubordination and disobedience, and he said he needed a new queen. So a search went out through all the land. Beautiful young virgins were taken from all across the kingdom. And what we find out is this young, beautiful virgin, Jewish name of Hadassah, Persian name of Esther, she receives the royal crown. If you glance back to verse 17 of chapter 2, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So now we have this surprising, certainly unexpected, young Jewish girl rising to the queen's place in the Persian kingdom, just as the Jewish people are about ready to come under the threat of destruction. Now that threat of destruction, surprisingly, stems from Mordecai's report. Look at verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, it's perplexed scholars and commentators, this idea of a second gathering of virgins. It could be for a variety of different reasons. Like many things in Esther, we really have no idea the circumstances surrounding the historical situation. It could be something as simple as in an age where information traveled so slowly. That as these virgins were gathered from the greatest kingdom known in the world at the time, that there was the second wave of them that had come into the city, but word hadn't gotten out that actually the king had already chosen a king. I'm sorry, a queen. And so they were a little bit late to the harem. Or much more likely, it is given the standards and context of the time, it's probably just King Ahasuerus building another harem for himself. 
But the important point is we're meant to see is this man named Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. Oh, we know, you remember, that Mordecai is Esther's cousin, probably separated by a noticeable number of years, that he had adopted her as his daughter, so very much functioning as an adoptive father to her, and he's sitting at the king's gate. That's actually an ancient way of speaking about an official role in the palace. So the king's gate was this building that was normally on the outside of like the palace complex. It was a place where judicial matters were decided and settled. And someone who sat at the king's gate was someone who was in charge in an official sense of palace administration. It might be something similar, students, to what legal spheres and courtrooms will talk about today as the person sitting on the bench as referring to a judge. And so Mordecai has some degree of prominence and prestige. And that's there while he's sitting at the gate. You scan your eyes through the next couple verses. He overhears this assassination plot from two of the king's eunuchs. He quickly relays word to Esther that this is getting ready to happen. These men want to take the king's life, and she delivers it to the king. And then, of course, you'll notice... In verse 23, in the middle, these men were executed as a result. But significantly for the story as it continues in future chapters, look at the end of verse 23. And it was recorded, what Haman had reported. It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And you'll see even at the end of verse 22 that this report came to the king in the name of Mordecai. And so you would think, given the cultural expectations of the time, that such a favor to the king, such a warning to the king, frankly, saving the king's life, would have brought Mordecai some sort of reward in return. But it doesn't bring him a promotion. Instead, it leads to the rise of this man named Haman in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. There was a few years when I was a younger child that our family went to this family camp every summer in July in Colorado. And it was one of those camps that kind of had the sequence of events every single day, not just during the day, but in the evening as well. And later on in the week, you'd have one night, there was a talent show, which was a riotous affair, and another night would have this scripted melodrama. And if you know anything about kind of an old Western melodrama, it's intended to elicit audience interaction. So you kind of get an idea of what's supposed to happen early on. So for example, kids, whenever the heroine or the hero of the melodrama arises onto the stage, you know, you're supposed to clap or give some sort of applause that, yeah, this is a good guy or this is a good girl. But when the villain arises and arrives, you're supposed to boo or you're supposed to hiss. And if Esther was a melodrama, when you ever see Haman's name printed, you should just hiss and boo. Because you'll see what happens in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman and advanced him and set his throne above the officials who were with him. We don't know what honor Haman had extended to the king to earn this. We don't know if he had performed some particular service to the king to earn this promotion He is essentially risen to the title of the grand vizier in the land, the second in charge to the king, and as such, you're to bow before him. You see that in verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Now, I don't think... That, of course, we have any place in our country, at least, where there's the expectation that you're going to bow before a political leader, a ruler, or an individual in this way. 
But you know as well as I do, don't you, that still our political climate, our culture in America has no small number of political things before which you're supposed to bow. They tend to be ideas, philosophies, perhaps other worldviews that demand your submission. And Haman's rise demands all people submit to him. You'll notice, though, at the end of verse 2, Haman's rise leads to Mordecai's reaction. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, we're going to think more at the end about why exactly it is that Mordecai surely wasn't bowing before Haman in this moment. But it creates a conundrum for a palace official like Mordecai. It's clear at this moment, those that would have been co-workers of Mordecai, those that knew him in the temple complex, I'm sorry, the palace complex, they didn't know he was a Jew. And so you'll see there in verse 3, they are asking him, why do you transgress the king's command? You can understand how this might happen. A co-worker comes up to you, why is it that you aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing? Why is it that you're rejecting what you are supposed to be submitting to? Day after day, the text says this was happening to Mordecai. And it seems like he gets to a point, perhaps at the end of himself, where he says, maybe thinking this is going to calm all of the storm, he says, well, here's the deal. I'm a Jew. Well, that becomes bad news for Mordecai because that news gets back to Haman. And his reaction leads to Haman's rage in the rest of chapter 3. You see the end of verse 5 into verse 6. Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. It was in the early 1940s that much of the watching world discovered that Nazi Germany had been engaged in a satanic plan behind closed doors. Part of the Nazi ideology was the desire for a master race. And therefore, it required the purging of all people who did not fit into categories and standards of said master race. And one of the vexing issues for the Nazis at that time was what they called the Jewish question. And euphemistically, that we now know as the Holocaust, they spoke of the extermination of the Jews in Europe as something of the final solution. It was really nothing more than just an echo of Haman's final solution, So many centuries before, you see the end of verse 6. So, as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. He's not content to just deal with Mordecai, so much as his lust for power, his opposition to God's covenant people, that he wants every single last soul, no matter how old, no matter how young, they must be annihilated. So here's how he's going to do it. It seems as though he's in this Persian parlor, verse 7 says, and begins to cast pur, which is essentially saying casting lots. So kids, you can picture someone maybe throwing dice around. And in our age, people might throw dice, they might roll dice for gambling purposes. Back then, you would do it for divination purposes. You wanted an answer to a spiritual question or certainly a significant question and the dice would reveal the answer. So he's interested, when is the best time to kill all the Jews? He's throwing this dice. And as the die settles, he discovers 
that the best time, at least as he reads it, to kill the Jews is going to be in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, the end of verse 7 says. So if you understand kind of the timelines going to ensue, it seems like about 11 months are going to pass where he's having to wait for the destruction of the Jewish people. And he's, of course, not got the power to do this all of his own accord, so he needs to get the king's approval. And you'll see in verse 8 and following, he goes to the king. So he cozies up to him, sidles up to him and says, Hey, king, do you know about this people group that's in your vast empire? You see, it says in verse 8, there's a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples in all their provinces of your kingdom. And he goes on to say in the rest of verse 8 that they're a danger to the kingdom. It's almost like you have to raise the, the threat level of this one people group to such a degree that they're an immediate, obvious threat to the health and the welfare, the protection of your people, that you need to deal with them, all of them, right away. And then he says, to increase the likelihood of the king's approval of his plan, look what he says in verse 9, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. Sometimes you'll read through these Old Testament texts, and you'll come through these numbers that are ancient and old, and it's hard to understand exactly what that would equate to in our time today. So on the way down to this service, I told Emily, look up the price of silver. So she looked up the price of silver. And what you need to know is 10,000 talents of silver, it's hard to pin it down exactly, but it's essentially something like 700,000 pounds of silver. Which according to our price of silver, as it stands on this day, the year of our Lord, 2021, would mean Haman is essentially offering the king something like a quarter of a billion dollars. I'll pay you $250 million if you let me kill all the Jews. And one of my kids rightly said, did he have all that money? <laughs> and of course not. But according to the stroking of royal egos, it was something that King Ahasuerus surely would have liked to know that he could fatten his coffers off of this plan. So the king, verse 10, took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. And look what happens at the end of verse 11. He says simply, do with them as it seems good to you. Stunning, isn't it? God's providence can so often be surprising and perhaps perplexing to the degree that he takes all of his covenant people and says to his enemy, or certainly their greatest enemy, do with him as you will. Such is his mysterious work among us. Well, verse 12 through 15 finds Haman putting his plan into official action. He takes the signet ring, he calls the scribes, and he says, Here is my rage now written into law, verse 13 tells us. That he wrote letters to everyone throughout the kingdom, sending couriers to the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So you see, the date is set, the warning is decreed, your execution day, your destruction day, your entire people's annihilation day is coming in just a few months' time. God's covenant people that he has promised to bless forever 
are facing the potential of being wiped out. So God's people at this point in the story are under threat. And what I want you to see as we begin to close from this simple text are two rich realities that belong not only to the short story of Esther, the first of which is I want you to see the enemy of God's people. The enemy of God's people. Look back to chapter 3, verse 1. We're told that King Ahasuerus had promoted Haman the Agagite. Skip down to verse 10. The king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite. So kids, you should know that Haman, being an Agagite, must be important. But do you know anything about the Agagites? Well, it stretches all the way back to Exodus chapter 17. God had redeemed his people out of bondage and slavery. In Egypt, he was redeeming them to the promised land. And along the way, Agag the Amalekite came out against God's people and sought to destroy them. And what God decreed in light of their opposition to his people... He decreed that he was going to wipe out the Amalekites, all those that belonged to Agag, wipe them out from the memory of the earth. And that was supposed to happen several centuries in the future in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where a king named Saul was told to fight against the Amalekites and to wipe them all out. But if you know Saul's fall in that text, he kept King Agag alive. And centuries into the future, it's now another Agagite rising, ready to destroy God's people. And surely it's nothing more than yet another instance of this great war that's existed from Genesis onward. The battle, the rage, the fight, the epic war between the seeds of the serpent and the seeds of the woman. The serpent is always trying to swallow up. God's promises. He knows that the chosen Redeemer, the coming Messiah, is going to come from the nation of Israel, from the Jewish people. So why not wipe them all out? Foil the plan early on. And God, in His providence, again underscoring the significance at the end of verse 11, places His people right in Haman's hand. And you see how it's working out. Mordecai gave this report. Instead of him rising, Haman rises. Because Haman rose, Mordecai won't bow. And because Mordecai doesn't bow, Haman says, I'm going to get rid of all of the Jews. So often that you might find yourself in a place in the Christian life where you feel as though everything is going wrong. You feel as though everything couldn't get any worse. It seems to be suffering upon suffering, trial upon trial, tribulation upon tribulation. You wonder, is all God doing? frowning upon my life. But remember, you can trust God's providences even when they seem to run against His purposes because you want to see not only the enemy of God's people, secondly and finally, you want to see the mystery of God's providence. The mystery of God's providence. One of the beloved English preachers of the 17th century was A man who preached ordinarily to sailors. He was a man named John Flavel. And perhaps his most beloved work in the centuries since his death is simply titled, The Mystery of Providence. And along the way in his ministry, Flavel loved to say that the right way to think about God's providence is like how we think about Hebrew letters. Best read backwards. 
And it's true in this book, when you understand how God works out his providence, it's only as you read it backwards that you can understand he was with his people all along. Setting them up for not only faithfulness towards him, but of course, him being faithful to his very promise. That he's actually going to ordain this story in such a surprising way that it's going to lead to the death, finally, of this Agagite. But it takes his people being threatened for that to happen. Perhaps even the simplest way to underscore the reality of what's going on here in the mystery of God's providence is look back to verse 7 of chapter 3 when Haman is casting these die, trying to discern when it is that he ought to kill the Jews. You see, when it happens in the first month, which is the month of Nisan. Now, do you know what Jewish people would do in the month of Nisan? They'd have a feast. It was the feast of Passover. A feast that was an annual reminder that in the face of death, God had miraculously redeemed his people and brought them into faithfulness to his promise. And here it is, yet again, God's people facing imminent death, called to remember that he will save his people through a redeemer, through his covenant promises. And so it points us to that great day in reality that Jesus Christ, of course, is God's mystery. Once hidden, now revealed. How is it that can God's people stand in the midst of uncertain circumstances, frowning providences? How is it that God's people can rest secure even when it seems like the world is entirely against them? And will actually win. Well, you remember that he has sent a mystery that is his son, Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time to overthrow all of your enemies. So when the enemy of God's people rises, we lean on the reality of the mystery of God's providence, knowing that he will protect and provide for us in his covenant redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises. In the most surprising of ways, you fulfill what you have said you will do for us. And we pray that you would do that this very week. That you would still within us a trust, even in the midst of trying circumstances, confusing situations, where the enemy seems to win and be winning. We know that you have already fought the battle in your son, Jesus Christ, and the victory is ours. So give us rest in the midst of our hardship as we look forward to you bringing your good purpose and promise to pass in our lives. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.